and welcome to episode 2020 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rally of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Which do you think is the most disappointing team of 2023? Oh, boy. I guess limiting it to teams that actually had high expectations coming into the season. <laughs> maybe maybe that's assumed it would be tough to be the most disappointing team if no one expected you to be good. I'm just thinking of, well, the A's. We'll talk about the A's, but also the Royals. We talked about them last time and how they're disappointing, too, in that they're terrible and maybe we're expected to be not terrible. But yeah. I'm talking less about the difference between terrible and less terrible or terrible and not terrible and the difference between eh and really good or bad and good, <laughs> right? I think there, there are a few contenders, I think, for most disappointing team thus far. And, you know, we're only, what, uh, 41 or 2% or something of the way through the season. Right. Long season. Do we want to establish the field and then sure pick. Yeah. yeah can i offer some nominations and then mm-hmm. you can tell me what yours are if they if they differ at all so i think like the the obvious contenders for me sit mostly in the national league how about that well most of the bad teams are in the, are national, in the national league, league. I, mean, I mean there's some notable yeah. exceptions as oh, you yes. just mentioned but yeah no that's the worst teams are in the american league but, but <laughs> a lot of the bad ones are in and also yeah. i guess and not like, a lot of the good ones or the really good ones i guess i i just uh, saw joshi and tweeted earlier that uh Two-thirds of the American League has a positive run differential. Two-thirds of the National League has a negative run differential. Pretty good chance that at least one of the 10 best teams in baseball misses the playoffs this year. Although it probably won't be that great a team. But yeah, there's a a skew there, which I guess we kind of knew coming into the season that the leagues were looking that way. But it has been striking. I mean, it's... So mostly meaningless, I guess, because what is a league in MLB anymore? I mean, it's just a historical relic at this point more than anything else, but it obviously impacts playoff berths, so it matters in that sense. Okay, can I offer my my teams? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the National League, let's just take it by division. Here are teams I find disappointing. The Mets. Yes. <laughs> I'm yep. starting in the East. I'm <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm exhibiting a surprising East Coast bias um, mm-hmm. for for a Meg thought. Mm-hmm. The Mets. Yes. Um, I want to put a pin in the Phillies. We should talk about not like in a literal way. That would be mm-hmm. rude. They've already had such injury misfortune, right? But let's think on the Phillies. We're gonna mm-hmm. we're gonna put them in there, but we're gonna I think have to have a conversation about the Phillies. Okay, in the Central, and it feels odd to have like Central teams be disappointing because the expectations for the entire division are so low. But Cardinals yeah. definitely probably oh, yeah. a disappointing team. Mm-hmm. And then in the West, like. We do have to talk about the Padres, you know. Yep. We have to. We have to talk about those Padres. Those are my NL squads that I'm going to yeah. offer. Is is that little amalgamation, of guys? And then mm-hmm. in the American League, the Blue Jays. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna offer mm-hmm. the Blue Jays, which feels. You might say, "What, Meg? What?" <laughs> right? Because <laughs> they're they're 38 and 31 as we record yeah. here on Thursday morning. So you might say, "What?" But mm-hmm. I'm gonna say we should we should talk about the Blue Jays. We should offer them as an yeah. option. Okay. You know, we should probably talk about the the Guardians. We should talk yeah, about okay. the Guardians. All right. 
And then uh, in the West, you know, we should talk about those Seattle Mariners. Yeah, they're probably in the conversation. They're in the conversation, but like, I, I think that there's like the there's the conversation about teams that have genuinely disappointed, right? And then there are there's a conversation to be had about teams that perhaps challenge us to more realistically calibrate our expectations, you mm-hmm. know, that when they present themselves for inspection prior to the start of the season, we should maybe be like, mm, I'm a poke you now. Uh-huh. And maybe we were, or <laughs> some of us were. Yeah. Some of I, us. I think you have identified a good field there or a, a bad, disappointing field. And I think my my top ones, my really top contenders are in the National League, all of them. But but yeah, we can talk about each of those in turn. So, I mean, on the American League side, you, you want to lay out the case for the Mariners being disappointing, as you probably feel that more acutely than I do? <laughs> I mean, I do and I don't, right? Mm-hmm. So, on the one hand, yes, they're disappointing because at times it has been like incandescently good pitching, right? It has mm-hmm. been good pitching lately, right? It has not been as like, wow. And, you know, they have had to witness the ups and downs of Julio's sophomore season, right? Mm -hmm. They have a bad offense, just like objectively a bad offense. So on that score, yes, they are disappointing. But I think I was clear that while, yes, I did think that they would be a, a wild card team. I think I picked them to be a wild card team prior to the season. So in, in that sense, they are disappointing my expectations, but I think I was also quite clear and I was not a, you know, voice in the wilderness here by any means or a lot of folks who pointed this out that like the ways that things could go wrong for Seattle were fairly obvious, right? They did do some stuff, but it wasn't a lot of stuff, right? Their additions on offense were Teoscar Hernandez, it was Colton Wong, it was sort of bats that we expected to either stay good or rebound some in Wong's case, but You know, they didn't sign any of the big marquee free agents. They didn't really sign any big free agents at all, Um, marquee or otherwise. It was an offense that was going to be heavily dependent on Julio staying as good as he had been last year. And he's obviously, you know, started to turn things around in the last little bit here, but he's not what he was uh, in that rookie season, at least not so Mm -hmm. far. And the offense they are, even with Jared Kelnick being like, oh, no, no, I can be a good big leaguer. You know, this is the thing about me is I can be a a good big leaguer, although his June hasn't been as prolific, so da-da-da. Basically, the top-line takeaway for the Mariners is that I did not feel that they had put themselves in a position to take advantage of potential missteps on Houston's part or, more accurately, injury issues on Houston's part, that they were not challenging the Rangers for sort of making big, decisive moves that would put them in a position to really make a run at the West. And so... To call them disappointing is, like, true and not true. Like, this is what they were. They were kind of projected to be a team that was right around 500. And you could imagine ways that that could break in their favor because they have Julio and they have all of this really great pitching and they've been able to develop really good pitching. But they didn't reinforce the offense when you compare their staff to last year's. Like, last year's rotation in particular was so healthy. We've already seen the ways in which they aren't healthy this year, right? And so even though they have been very good like they just didn't have a lot of margin for error and we are seeing the results of not giving yourself margin for error which is that you're 33 and 34 and you're nine games back and you have you know 20 percent 19 percent uh playoff odds 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would kind of lump the Mariners and maybe the Phillies together yes. and cross them off the list, probably, of most disappointing teams, even though they've been disappointing. I think they've been disappointing relative to 2022 because they were the opposite of disappointing last year, right? At least when it was all said and done. The Phillies uh, were not a great baseball team in 2022, but they won a pennant. They were super exciting at the end. And then they signed Trey Turner, and uh, he is probably among the more disappointing players if we were talking about individuals. So I think if you had come into the season thinking, hey, the Phillies just uh, made a World Series and and made it tough for the Astros in that World Series, and then they went out and got Trey Turner, like, uh, this is our time, then you're probably pretty disappointed by the Phillies. And similarly, if you're a Mariners fan and they finally broke the drought and they made the playoffs and you thought, okay, the competitive window is here and we're contenders now and we're going to be a perennial playoff team. I don't know how many Mariners fans took it for granted that they were going to be a perennial playoff team. I knew not a single one, not yeah, even okay. one. <laughs> so that's uh, a person I just invented. But did you, I, make, did you make up a guy to fight with, Ben? What is this, Twitter? <laughs> but I still think that, uh, you know, you might have hoped that, that that was the start of something. And, you know, it, it could still be. But relative to maybe more sober-minded preseason expectations, those two teams are performing roughly as expected, right? I mean, they were sort of uh, projected to be 500-ish teams, and they're 500-ish teams thus far. Again, like, not that the Fangraphs playoff odds or any site's playoff odds is necessarily the consensus preseason expectation, but obviously it's something that frames our expectations to some extent and, and that we're conscious of. So you look at the Phillies, and, you know, they were, I think, uh, projected to be roughly what they are right now. I mean, their their playoff odds are down a, a little bit, but not even double digits. Uh, you know, they're what they're 34 and 34 now. They've uh, they've been a little bit better of late. They've gotten back to 500 and. They're projected to be a 85-win team, so it would be disappointing, I think, if the Phillies fail to make the playoffs after how their season ended last year, but it was far from certain that they would make the playoffs again, that they were good enough to do that. <laughs> they just barely squeaked in last year, so where they are right now does not really surprise me, I guess. You know, like it certainly it could have gone better, but uh, this was more or less like the median outlook for them, I think, coming into the season and tough division. And I don't know that the Mariners are that much different again, because it was like disappointing that they didn't do more. But once the dust settled and they hadn't done more, then it wouldn't be so disappointing to find them where they are now, which is projected for 82 wins or something, because uh, that's more or less where they were, I think, when the season started. In fact, it's exactly where they were. <laughs> like, they're they're bang on. Like, the Phillies, their projection was 84.9 wins before the season started. The Mariners, 82.3. And neither of them has changed that by any significant margin even now. So I'm going to rule them out of contention for most disappointing. Guardians are, are sort of similar, I think, in that they were a surprise team. They were a fun team. They exceeded expectations last year. And neither of us projected them as a playoff team coming to the season, right? I mean, I, I didn't think they'd miss by much. And 
they aren't missing by that much and they might not miss when it's all said and done. Who knows? But yeah, they've been disappointing in that they have not built on their success last year and the offense has cratered. Not that it was great last year. It was interesting last year, but it's just been downright bad this year. So, yeah, the fact that they have not taken a step forward and have taken something of a step back, disappointing. But still, within the range of of reasonable outcomes for them coming into the season, again, they were projected for 81.9 wins, and now they're not that far off that pace, right? I mean, they're projected for 79 or something now. So when we're talking about most disappointing team, we're talking about a team that's more than a win or two off its preseason projected pace, even though there are people who probably had significantly rosier expectations for them coming into the season than the stats and the projections did. Okay, so we've ruled out the Guardians, the Phillies, and the Mariners. The Blue Jays, now that's that's an interesting one because uh, unlike these other disappointing teams that we're talking about, the Blue Jays are good. <laughs> they're, they're a winning baseball team and they are still projected to make the playoffs uh, more likely than not, but it's closer than, than it was, than that it could have been. So again, I don't think they're going to take it here because they're having a pretty darn decent season. But what's the case for the Blue Jays as, as disappointing, if not most disappointing, just somewhat disappointing? Well, I think um, some of that case is is maybe specific to to me, to mm-hmm. little old Meg, because I'm I do not remember, and I refuse to check, but I'm pretty sure I had them winning. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, I may have too. That yeah. sounds, sounds familiar. Um, yeah, and so it is not as if they have like a a bad offense, but I expected a more potent offense than they have had um, mm-hmm. thus far, which is you're like, you're sitting there as a listener and you're like, Meg, they have a they have a team WRC plus of 111. They have like yeah. the fifth best team WRC plus in baseball. And to that I say, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> you're not wrong. Like that's mm-hmm. a f- fair point. Will I find myself hoisted on some sort of petard? I mean, it, maybe, but I just uh, I expected it to be more potent than it has been. I expected it to be like dominant. I expected it to be overwhelming. I expected to sit here today as we record and be like, wow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did not expect, for instance, for Bo Bichette to have a, a higher WRC plus than Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Mm-hmm. You know, and some of this is just like being damned by prior excellence, right? Because objectively, a player with a 121 WRC plus it's a very good player, you know, useful, yep. super, like, you know, you're looking at that guy and you're going, wow, what a strong offensive contributor. And then you look and you're like, oh, but it's Vladdy. And I expect him to be otherworldly, right? right. And is that fair? I mean, I don't know. We build expectations and those who uh, are met with them help us to build them also. So, <laughs> yeah. There's that, you know, did I think that Dalton Varsho would be a below league average hitter by WRC plus? I, I didn't, Ben, you know, and he's starting to, he's starting to heat up. It's starting to turn a little bit for him, but I thought it would be, and it has been, eh. you know, so Kevin Kiermaier though, man, how about that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, they're, they're a good team and they're yet good team. They, they do still feel a little bit 
disappointing to me too. I think maybe as I sit here, perhaps the word that I mean more than disappointing is vulnerable. They feel Mm -hmm. vulnerable, right? Because the offense is good and I expected it to be better. The rotation is, I'm going to just use the word weird mostly (laughs) to describe, I think, the Blue Jays rotation. I think that the word I want is weird because it's like Kevin Gassman has been so good and Jose Barrios, what is that? Like, what are we... Where are we? It's been better. <laughs> you know, good, yeah, I think we could say he's good again. It's yeah, just, <laughs> I think I think mm-hmm. I think he's good again. But mm-hmm. again, he feels it feels vulnerable, right? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you have Bassett who is doing Bassett stuff, you know? He's doing mm-hmm. Bassetty things. And then then there's the Manoa of it all. And like, what's he gonna be like when he comes back? We don't know. Yep. We don't yep. know. So they feel are they like a really lockdown team from a bullpen perspective? I, I mean, in some ways, I, I guess, but in other yeah. ways, no, only it's... only like the back end of that bullpen, really. And you know, it's like mm-hmm. it never like Jordan Romano has been very good, but it doesn't always feel easy with him, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and and granted, I am also doing that thing that I'm sure makes dedicated fans of a team crazy because you you're like melding what you see of the stats with the games that you have watched and i don't watch the blue jays every day so Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's like there could be a disconnect there i might be being too harsh although the blue jays fans i follow on twitter tweet as if they are 10 games under 500 so (laughs) i don't know that my perception is all that different from their own experience sound off in the comments but um (laughs) (laughs) but they feel vulnerable so i'm gonna amend my statement they're not disappointing but they are not what i thought they would be and what they are feels vulnerable a lot of it is a lot of it's the division it's such a hard division it's just Mm -hmm. such a it's such a hard division if you go by just like yes right just uh, sprinkle some of that talent on the central divisions let's say but yeah it's it's the strength of schedule like if you look at uh espn's strength of schedule rating thus far it's red sox yankees blue jays right and i think that makes them look not as impressive as they would were they were they anywhere else but also, I've just been expecting, like, uh, the main event that Vlad Guerrero said was going to come after the preview, right? I keep expecting them to be the best team in that division and one of the best teams in baseball, and they just haven't quite gotten there yet. So, again, I cite the playoff odds just because it's a handy way to remind ourselves what some reasonable expectations were so that we can gauge disappointment. But they're right in line with what the playoff odds saw them as, a, like an 88-win team. That is still what they're tracking as, basically. It's just that, yeah, you know, it doesn't look like they're going to make a run at winning this division. And that's somewhat disappointing. But the offense, it's a top-five offense. They remade their outfield defense, and their outfield defense is leading the majors in defensive runs saved. Like, and it can, and sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. again, Kevin Kierbeier, what mm-hmm. a is... I'm offering a take. I think that might be the best mid-tier signing of the offseason. Mm, yeah, it's yeah, it's worked out really well because like it 
it seemed to make sense on paper. If you want to remake your outfield defense, go get Kevin Kiermaier. But he is uh, 33 years old and he was coming off a significant injury. And so who knew whether he would still be the same Kevin Kiermaier? And yeah, he has been. So that's worked out really well. And I guess it's like the pitching, particularly the bullpen, they've uh, given up some some blow up, some like Joe Sheehan had a stat in his newsletter that just compared to other AL East teams, uh, the Blue Jays have given up 49 runs in the eighth inning, which all the other AL East teams like the Orioles and the Red Sox are tied with 27 allowed, the Yankees and Rays 24 and 21, like the Blue Jays have had some some come from ahead losses, right? Like they've they've blown some games that if they had gone their way, then they might look a little better than they are. But but that's all it amounts to. Like they're still a good baseball team. So I think that leads us to the top three here, which were the three I really had in mind, although these others were all worth talking about. But it's got to be the Mets, the Cardinals, and the Padres. Like we've talked a fair amount about each of them at times this season. So if you go by change in odds since the start of the season, which I guess is one way you could gauge this, then the Cardinals take the cake with just the, I guess, the biggest decline in pure playoff odds. So 54 percentage points they're down since the start of the season. That's the most of any team. If you go by World Series odds, then the Mets are ahead. They're down 5.6 percentage points of of World Series chances. The Cardinals, 3.9. The Padres, 4.2. Surprisingly, the Yankees actually are are down uh, 5.5 percentage points. They had more to begin with, but, you know, just because I guess they are probably not going to win this division, so their odds of winning the division are are down very significantly as the Rays, uh, despite looking vulnerable themselves at times, have kind of solidified their lead again there. So I would say that uh, the Padres and the Mets just had their expectations inflated by their offseason. I mean, not unfairly inflated, just inflated because they were active, particularly the Padres, I guess, because when you look at the Mets, like they spent a lot of money. But as we noted, they didn't really add a whole lot to their team. They were retaining. Yeah, they were retaining or replacing, right? And, you know, except for when they signed Carlos Correa and then he ultimately is not a Met. And uh, I guess the teams that that made runs at Carlos Correa and lost him or decided not to keep him are not disappointed about that decision thus far. He's been a little bit better lately, but he's also been injured, not in the ankle, but uh, in the foot, the the other leg. And so he has uh, had a somewhat disconcerting season himself. But that's a whole other conversation, I guess, about Carlos Correa's year in review. And again, he's been better lately. So maybe by the time it's all said and done, he will have uh, righted the ship somewhat. But I think just because the Padres, like, this was the year, and this is the year they were finally going to be better than the Dodgers, and they spent all that money, and they got Sander Bogart's uh, expectations were super high. They have not lost as much in playoff odds as uh, the Cardinals, let's say, because— Because they were in a better division. (laughs) Yeah, right, and— We believed in the Dodgers. Yeah, the Cardinals, like— Not that I thought they were a super team or anything, but I I think 
man, the Cardinals, it's tough to beat when it comes to disappointing teams because... Yeah, they might just they might just take it. They might because, I mean, they started so slowly and then there was the whole, I mean, multiple messes with Marmol and messaging and O'Neill and then the whole Contreras <laughs> debacle. Multiple messes with Marmol. <laughs> yeah, multiple messaging messes with Marmol. And then... They were better, right? And and it seemed like, okay, that was maybe just a blip and uh, Contreras is catching again and they're playing better. And then, no, the wheels fell off again. And, I mean, Contreras, I guess, has been part of the problem offensively. He's been slumping. Uh, whether that is at all related to the way they jerked him around, who knows? But that hasn't been going great lately. And they've just been, like, a depressing team. I mean, they were expected to win that division, and again, sort of a weak division. So it not being the best team in the Central maybe is not quite as disappointing as not being the best team in the East or, or the West. But they they have the worst record in the National League right yeah, now. Right? How, I mean, how like, did that? That's, they, yeah. <laughs> they, and, and you say that, Ben, you know, and it assumes everything I'm about to say, right? It's obvious given what you just said, what I'm about to say. But like that means for the record, they have they have a worse record than the Rockies. Yeah, they have a worse record than the Nationals. Than the Nationals. <laughs> they have a worse mm-hmm. record than the Cincinnati Reds. They have mm-hmm. a worse record than the Pirates. I would yep. argue, potentially, yeah. with the exception of maybe the Nationals, also way worse vibes than mm-hmm. all of those teams. Yes, you know how yes, you can objectively measure vibes, but like <laughs> right. when you put you you know you put your finger to the wind and you're like, what's the vibe? It's mm-hmm. bad. It seems yeah. like it's a not good vibe. And I know. Um, I despite the hamburger phone's best efforts. Yeah, wow. <laughs> but, Remember the hamburger phone, yeah, Ben? Right. That's when things seem to be it turning work. around. It's no, weird. It, it didn't, I guess. <laughs> but not if they've been predicting positive outcomes for the team. But yeah, I man, I I don't think you can beat the Cardinals. Like it's just like they don't have the the payroll and the the baggage of those other two teams, like the pressure, the expectations, and and they have been so successful for so long that you might be inclined to say, yeah, you know, give them a mulligan on this year. Like they're they're always contending. The fact that they're always contending, I guess, makes it more disappointing that they're not this year, but also more excusable in that, uh, hey, everyone has an off year eventually, I suppose. But but yeah, if you're the Cardinals and you're expected to be a division winner, most likely, and then you have the worst record in the league through a significant portion of the season. Tough to beat that. The only reason why the Padres and the Mets might have a better case, despite not being as bad at baseball thus far or as uh, far out of things, is just because of everything that goes along with them and the history of their franchises and trying to change the narrative about those teams and then the expectations about the payroll and the spending and what it means if that totally backfires on them. But just in terms of, yeah, vibes and just this has been bad to watch. Yeah, it hasn't been. Yeah. I'm not offering that it is as bad as Stanford, Texas, which is like (laughs) my new North Star in terms Mm -hmm. of, oh, no. Yeah. But Ben, Oh no! Right. Some of these losses have just been <laughs> yeah, yeah. jaw dropping. Yeah, and if you were to talk about which manager's uh, seat is wobbliest, then you would think probably the Cardinals would would be in the lead there. So 
Okay, so let's say it's probably the Cardinals. Of those three main contenders, which are you most confident will take themselves out of the running for this title by the end of the season? Oh, so, so who has a who has some mm, who has some devil magic? Is what you're asking? Yeah, I don't think it's the or, Cardinals. <laughs> no, or just because when the Cardinals were struggling at the start of the season, I was still kind of like, yeah, they'll be fine in the end. But it doesn't look like they'll be fine now. They're only eight and a half games out because, again, it's a central division and it's not like there's a great team at the top there. So, like, the Mets are further out of the, the lead in the East than the Cardinals are in the Central. The Mets are 10 games back of the Braves, who've been playing really well lately. So, And the Padres are seven and a half games out of the West lead. So I guess this comes down to which of these teams do you actually think is better than it has looked thus far or is like actually a pretty decent baseball team and is in the circumstances that they could maybe change the story of their season by the time it's all said and done. The Padres are still, according to the playoff odds, a likely playoff team. Like they are, there are 62% chance to make the playoffs, only 14.5% chance to win the division. It's not where they want it to be, but if you believe in the underlying talent there it's it's not too late for them i think it's probably san diego i think mm -hmm. that that's the honest answer i mean yeah. i think that for a couple of reasons first i think that like just from a true talent perspective they are probably underperforming where they were and i think that when you look at the guys who <sighs> am I, is this going to be supported by evidence <laughs> The pro one of the problems that the Mets have is that in addition to underperforming, like, they're old, yes. you know, as a team. And so when mm -hmm. you think about the guys who might kick it into a different gear and really turn it around and like, me, it, it feels like your room for that starts to diminish as you age, you know, right. I yeah, say as if someone. You're, if you're Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. Right. And you're not playing like your old self. You're playing like your I'm old self. Old, <laughs> right? Yeah. Then <laughs> oh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't yeah, laugh. Look, yeah. Look, uh, neither of those guys has been bad. You know, uh, most people, most athletes, most pitchers would be quite happy to be, be pitching like Verlander and and Scherzer at the age of uh, forty and thirty eight, respectively. Right. But relative to uh, what the hopes were what their salaries are, what their track records are. It's uh, not going to cut it with those two at the top. You know, 4.45 ERA for Scherzer, 4.40 for Verlander, and uh, peripherals that are not really much better. They're basically the same FIPS, too. Like, those guys just, they haven't looked like rotation toppers to this point. So, and when you're at that age and with that level of, uh, you know, mileage on you and, and nagging injuries, then you're less confident that, that things are going to turn around and you're going to look youthful again. So, and I guess you could also say, if you look at like underlying performance rather than record, if we were to look at base runs, for instance, the Mets have uh, actually, if anything, have a better record yeah. than their underlying. <laughs> like the bad news the is they've outperformed. Yeah, whereas the Cardinals are six games below where they quote unquote should be. The Padres are four games below that. So 
if you want to look at the underlying performance, you could say, oh, they should be better than that. They've maybe gotten a little unlucky, whereas you can't even make that case for the Mets. Do we think that, you know, you said that that Marmol has the wobbliest chair, but I wonder, is it actually Buck Walter? It could be. I've certainly heard him some mentioned. Of, some yeah. of Buck's decisions have been kind of confounding. Mm-hmm. They've yeah. been, you know, they've been a mm-hmm. little like, hey, Buck, chip mm-hmm. two over there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is unrelated to those teams because one club I'm confident is not going to turn things around and make the postseason is the A's, but you know, they've Mm -hmm. been on this run. I'm just, I'm noticing this because I was looking as you were talking at like, you know, these clubs face run records and where Mm -hmm. their Pythagorean expectation is and run differential and whatnot. And you know, the, the A's, they've been on this run. You know, they mm-hmm. lost last night, but like, yeah. but they've been on this nice little run, right? Yeah, but there's a while there where you didn't even have to ask if they had lost last night because right. it was assumed. <laughs> but <laughs> right, and then they went yeah. on a little win streak, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. and they still have a negative one ninety five run differential. Good. All right. Well, we could just talk about the A's because obviously we were going to, but but I think we're we're agreed. Cardinals, most disappointing team thus far. And top three Cardinals, Mets, Padres, Padres least likely to be in the running for most disappointing of of that trifecta by the end of the season, right? That's what we've decided here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I think so. it's it's close though with the, yeah. the Mets and the Padres when it comes a, to that. So you know, it's a it's a race we're gonna have to revisit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure could, we will. It could move. <laughs> yeah. So the A's. The they they had their reverse boycott on yes. Tuesday. It was uh, an Irish wake of sorts for for the franchise in Oakland, right? It had that feeling. They drummed up pretty impressive support. Uh, people, you know, almost 28,000 fans in the ballpark came out just to tell John Fisher to sell the team and to send the message that uh, it was not Oakland's lack of support for the A's that has driven them out of town. It is ownership that is primarily responsible. And they did a lot of good in that respect, I think, in sending that message, uh, also in basically forcing the team's hand to donate all the revenue from that game to uh, local community charities, right? Which was over $800,000, right? Which I saw a lot of people just like uh, boggled, you know, their their minds were boggled by that number because that's one single game. Like, it And it's turns just out, the gate. It was, yeah, it was just the gate, right? Which I guess, I mean, it, I guess if you divide 800, whatever it was, thousand by uh, almost 28,000 fans, it's not shocking that it would be that much. It's like less than $30 per person. So even if that doesn't include, that didn't include concessions and everything else, I yeah, so you know, you could make a lot of money if you drew fans to come to your game by putting a competitive team on the field, it turns out. Yeah. but It was sort of a a stunning admission on their part, candidly. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I, again, they just got what they wanted from the Nevada state yes. legislature. So, you know, maybe, you know, jokes on me, but I continue to be amazed that they are um, so bad at messaging and also politics where it's like, you know, they're, they're like that gif of the guy going, he admitted. I don't know what it's from, right. Ben. I don't want you to tell me. It's <laughs> fine, fine that I not know. It's, <laughs> it's fine. I think you should leave. Yeah, I haven't, yeah. I haven't watched that, it. That any internet meme is from, I think you should leave and you'll I know. probably be right a high percentage of the I time. think I missed the window, right? Because it's like, uh, I, 
have seen there's so much of the show now so you can you can join but yes but yes you're right it it was kind of like hey if you just uh made an effort to draw fans to your ballpark not out of spite (laughs) but uh out of genuine desire to see the baseball team that you put on the field maybe you could make a viable business of that who knows but they have yeah it, it appears to be a done deal now i mean it's it's the a's ballpark moving saga so it's like the opposite of the the killer in the slasher movie where like they they look dead and yet they keep coming back it's the opposite of that it's like every time it it looks like they're getting what they want something happens they step on a rake or something but it it appears this time that they have uh, gotten what they wanted not as much as they initially wanted, but the Nevada politicians, uh, the Assembly, the Senate have passed the measure for public funding of the ballpark. And it's now gone to the governor, who, of course, is a supporter of the initiative. So sure looks like we are going to get the Las Vegas A's. And so that send off the other night, which was before that was a, a more or less done deal, it still felt final in a way. I I imagine it will be the last Oakland A's game for a lot of the people who were in the park. And uh, you could sense that atmosphere. It was sort of a a mourning, but also a defiance, uh, a pride. It's just like a a poignant mix of emotions. But I thought they did their fan base uh, proud by going out there and uh, spitting in the eye of, of John Fisher. I... Will admit to being a person sort of prone to strong feeling. (laughs) And so, you know, you can take every tear shed with a grain of salt, much like the salt it leaves on my face. But it made me, I felt, I felt pretty worked up. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I know that it didn't work insofar as it is not going to keep Oakland uh, in the major league baseball business, at least not Mm -hmm. in the long run, but um, it, was loud. It won't be forgotten. I think that there, um, and you know, as we're recording this, quotes from Rob Manfred yes. are coming in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, that we can talk about and that are infuriating. I think one of the one of the things that for me has made this era of not only like um, analysis of sports teams and fandom, but just like being alive so infuriating is how obviously and and willingly people and positions of power will just lie about stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. They will mm-hmm. just say as fact a thing that is obviously rebuked by reality or study or math or mm-hmm. common sense, and it makes you feel crazy. Mm-hmm. And so it felt very meaningful to me to to have this, like, statement made so profoundly, so decisively, just irrefutable despite the commissioner's best efforts today. Like, no, this is what this is what it is to be a fan in this city. This is what we're about. And you're making a decision to reject all of this. And that isn't because we aren't enthusiastic. It's not because we don't care about baseball. It's because you're greedy and we wouldn't vote to like compromise the quality of Oakland schools so that you could be a real estate developer. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was so, it was profoundly cool uh, you know it was just you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to censor clips from that game <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and to have to have an entire stadium of people go completely silent for a whole at bat and then roar back in the next one it was really spectacular and so i know that it didn't keep that team rooted in oakland as it were but i think everyone who participated in that should feel 
pretty proud of themselves because mm-hmm. it was a thing that I'll remember for a long time, certainly. Yeah, right. And, you know, now I guess we can quote some of these Manfred. Uh, which, ben? <laughs> <laughs> so he says, the real question is, what is it Oakland was prepared to do? There is no Oakland offer, okay? They never got to a point where they had a plan to build a stadium at any site. And it's not just John Fisher. The community has to provide support. Then he commented on the reverse boycott. I mean, it was great. It is great to see (laughs) what is this year almost an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. Wow. (laughs) All the charisma of someone running... Yeah, down ballot on the Republican primary ticket. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't hear him say this, so I don't know right. if— we don't know if, what the tone was, yeah, but like, try to imagine a good one. Can right. you? Right, I know. Like, it it sounds sarcastic. I, I don't know if he meant it to be sarcastic. It reads that way, but it's, it's also just, like, disparaging those folks on the way out, basically, like, to— pat him on the back and say, oh, great, you almost had an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. Well, why have there not been more of those crowds in that park this season, Rob? It's because of John Fisher, who, you know, was uh, anointed by by the anointer of of Rob Manfred, Bud Selig, and ushered into the ranks of MLB ownership. And then rather than try to pressure John Fisher to sell the team— Rob Manfred has basically become his mouthpiece publicly because John Fisher doesn't really talk much. So Rob Manfred does the talking for him. He also commented on the many, many studies that say that uh, stadium projects don't generate a lot of local economic growth. He said, I love academics. They're great. Take the areas where baseball stadiums had been built. Look at what was around Truist Park before that was built. Academics can say whatever they want. Okay, so, like, here's the thing about this. Um, I'm going to lose what remains of my mind. (laughs) Um, I mean, like, look, if you want to convince me, Rob, that there are economists who do kind of questionable work, I'm a political scientist. You don't have to work very hard to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a mountain a, yes. a Mount Everest-sized mountain. Yes. Mount Davis-sized. <laughs> Bigger than go. Mount Davis. Yeah. Good note. I mm-hmm. <laughs> I accept your edit, Ben. <laughs> Checking off yes to that in the Google Doc. Um, <laughs> that is unanimous. It all points in the same direction. It points. It's largely in agreement in terms of the magnitude. It has been studied up and down. The data has been sliced every way you can think of. It has accounted for, you know, the sort of real estate development nonsense he is pointing to here. And it all agrees, all of it agrees, that it does not deliver the kind of economic growth and revenue that remotely justifies the tax expenditure. Like, there's, Mm -hmm. it just, it's all in agreement. And even if you're inclined to not believe academics for whatever reason, you run a league that is obsessed with stats and you have such disregard for anything resembling rigorous analysis. But anyway, one of the ways that you can tell that it doesn't work the way they want it to is that if it were such an obviously good investment, if what you got out of putting these ballparks 
in those places was just like uniformly positive, they wouldn't ask for public funding. They just round up a bunch of investors and reap all the rewards themselves. But they don't want to do that because it costs a lot of money and it doesn't return what they want it to. (sighs) Yeah, it's frustrating. This is obviously his job. Like, I guess it's a little less maddening when you remind yourself that, like, he is a mouthpiece for the owners. They're his bosses and he wants to get them public funding. Like, he's uh, not employed to be a truth teller. It's like just the old confusion about like the commissioner and maybe what the commissioner of baseball was originally intended to be and what the commissioner has actually been for the past <laughs> most of a century, right? Which is not someone who is some like impartial arbiter who is looking out for the best interest of baseball, but really is looking out for the interests of baseball as they reflect the interests of the owners, which sometimes align with the, the interests of the fans and baseball as a whole, but very often don't. And uh, certainly don't when it comes to public funding in a place like Las Vegas, which uh, needs funding for schools and everything and is now going to get funding for this ballpark. Yeah. So, like, it's his job to, to sell that. That's why he continues to be employed. He is doing his job here. It's a frustrating job because he's often asked to be and is in the position of commenting on the sport and and does like govern the direction of the sport to some extent or at least uh, helps oversee it and and wrangle owners to support certain things and so when he says things that are clearly contrary to the truth like it is frustrating even though you acknowledge that uh, he is employed to sell that fiction to the people who can pass it and and make it a reality but it's uh, it's not great because he's often put in the position of like, talk to us about baseball, like sell us on baseball and its merits. Not that he has excelled on that historically. This has been a pretty good year for him in that regard, just in the sense that the rules changes that he helped usher in have been positively regarded and there have been good byproducts of that. But then he reminds you what his uh, actual job is in addition to all of that. I mean, we've talked about this before. Like on the one hand, I guess I'm grateful that he has the the level of charisma that he has because it does make it easier to sort of pry apart the the pieces of it that are obviously false or coming in with you know a heavy skew on on the part of the owners it is shocking that like they care so little about the guy who's the ostensible face of their league at least on the management side being this guy like he he said what he said And then it's already been refuted by the mayor of Oakland's office, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he he says this stuff as if we're not going to—I mean, I didn't do it. So this is coming from Casey Pratt, who I think works for the local ABC affiliate. I reached out to the Oakland mayor's office for a response to the commissioner's comment on, you know, what is Oakland prepared to do, etc. This is just totally false. There was a very concrete proposal under discussion, and Oakland had gone above and beyond to clear hurdles, including securing funding for infrastructure, providing an environmental review, and working with other agencies to finalize approval. The reality is the A's ownership had insisted on a multi-billion dollar park, 55-acre project that included a ballpark, residential, commercial, and retail space. In Las Vegas, for whatever reason, they seemed satisfied with a nine-acre leased ballpark on leased land. If they had proposed a similar project in Oakland, we feel confident a new ballpark would already be under construction. Oakland showed its commitment to the A's and that is why the A's belong in Oakland. Like, Mm -hmm. 
Rob, we're going to ask questions. We will do math. We will mm-hmm. like look at studies. We're not just going to sit here and be like, well, he makes some good points, you know, and he's so <laughs> well, charismatic. Yeah. No, he's <sighs> definitely not charismatic, but he does have a big uh, podium and microphone and maybe more people will hear what he says than hear what uh, the mayor of Oakland says, unless you're in Oakland, right? So, and uh, look, probably the owners don't want him to be super charismatic and popular because they want to control him. And also it's sort of his job to be unpopular and be the punching bag and take the blows that would otherwise be aimed at the owners. So he said what he said about the reverse boycott night that I read earlier. He also did comment on the fans in Oakland. He said, I hear from him. Now, maybe he's referring to uh, some of our Patreon supporters who email him directly, but he says, I hear from him. I feel sorry for the fans in Oakland. I do not like this outcome. I understand why they feel the way they do. And that was the preface to the rest of the quote, which is about what was Oakland prepared to do. It's not just John Fisher, et cetera, et cetera. But if he doesn't like this outcome, there were other possible outcomes that perhaps he could have had some control over. But again, it's uh, not necessarily what he is employed to do to uh, ensure that the ownership ranks are are better than they are. It's just to take his marching orders from who the owners are. You'd like to think that there'd be better control over who the owners are and that if they can't afford to own a baseball team or that they uh, insist on running it into the ground so that they can get a sweeter deal somewhere else that has nothing to do with baseball, then you'd like to think that that would be disqualifying. But uh, no, it, it isn't. And in fact, like there was the recent report at The Athletic from Evan Drellick and Ken Rosenthal, right, about the idea that uh, MLB is is possibly seeking to cap teams' spending in off-field areas, like staffing in baseball operations, uh, technology, player development, right, that they would like to limit this to have sort of like a, a salary cap that applies to what baseball teams can spend on baseball operations employees and baseball-related technologies. And MLB denied this and said there is nothing happening on the staffing front. What we are focused on is gathering information on vendor costs to find potential cost savings through efficiencies and to ensure equal access to all technology. But Ken and Evan are pretty well connected and they had sources suggesting that this was part of the motivation or at least that owners would like for this to happen, which is no surprise because uh, some contingent of the owners, they want to limit spending on anything and everything. Even if we're talking people with five-figure salaries in the front office who are barely making competitive earnings as it is. It's frustrating on a number of levels. I think that there are a lot of people who work for the league and work for the league explicitly in roles meant to help diversify the front office and make it look more like, you know, the people who care about baseball and who play the game. And they are very genuine in their desire to open up hiring and make it a true diverse meritocracy. Like there are people who are working to do that. And they are going to be stymied if the institutional response to the front office is to contract. Because even if salaries don't go down or stagnate, even if they weren't already too low, if you have fewer spots, I am skeptical that we are going to get as diverse uh, a workforce as we could because we know the profiles that tend to get hired, right? We know how many 
um, spots are filled by predominantly white men who went to elite colleges, many of whom can afford, because of family connection and money, to work jobs where they are underpaid relative to what those similar skill sets might bear in other fields, right? Mm -hmm. And that isn't to say that those guys aren't smart and that they don't know ball. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But Mm -hmm. when you constrain the realities of that job to people who can you know, afford to live in the Bay Area and make less than 70K a year, you're naturally going to constrain the pool of people who try to, you know, secure those jobs, who are able to stay in those jobs. And I think that it's just obviously counter to any effort to make that workforce more diverse. You know, Mm -hmm. I... Like, I totally believe that there are teams that are getting taken for a ride by technology vendors. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. sure, if you want to audit the way that major league teams engage with service providers, fine. Like, I, that's probably worthwhile. Like, don't, you know, throw away money. But if you're trying to limit the size of the front office, you know, it at the very least, it's not going to get less, you know, monochromatic than it is right now. And mm-hmm. And it might get more monochromatic. And it just is like, you know, if that is the vision of baseball you want, one where every front office looks the same, they all have similar resources, they're all constrained to, you know, a headcount cap and a salary cap, like, okay, but I don't think that you're going to end up with a more even playing field as a result of that. The way that the Rays stay in it is that they spend money on baseball ops and tech, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. that's the way that they compete when they can't necessarily compete because of the budget constraints on the player side. So mm-hmm. you're not going to inspire a more like balanced league. You're going to, if anything, concentrate power further in the teams that are able to spend up to and past the luxury tax threshold. So, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to continue to cater to I'm um, just like like the the clubs that don't want to spend anywhere. They mm-hmm. should just get out of the business then. Like right. why do we keep helping these people? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like the amounts of money we're talking about here are just not not huge, right? I mean, if you're so cheap or anti-competitive that you want constraints just in like how many baseball operations staffers you can have or how much you can spend on technology. We're not even talking about player payroll here. We're talking about a a pittance by comparison, right? I mean, people in front offices mostly don't make that much money, right? It's it's a a tough gig. In fact, uh, there was a thread this week, uh, Sam Schultz, who was uh, a former A's employee and and other teams and was on this podcast. And is a friend of mine, I should disclose. Yeah, and and, uh, appeared on this podcast some time ago. She had a whole thread about just like since getting out of baseball, as uh, a number of, of front office people have, like how much better her life has been, like in terms of work-life balance and and earning and stress and hours worked and everything. Like it's not a uncommon story, I don't think. You you have to really make some sacrifices if you want to work in baseball. And, and a lot of people do and they find it rewarding in other ways. But it's not like you're doing that to get rich or something. So owners who even in that area they want other teams hands to be tied 
it's just it's sort of pathetic if you feel like you can't even compete in that area like you need just your front office the size of that has to be constrained RJ Anderson wrote for CBS Sports uh, maybe a couple months ago about how some front office staffers have at least discussed the idea of perhaps trying to unionize there are all sorts of obstacles to that happening but this is the kind of thing that might push them to do that or or make them have those conversations because it's uh, already a pretty precarious job and vocation and occupation. And now it's like owners uh, hoping to to limit that. It, it just it feels like a, an overreach too, kind of to say, I mean, teams, you know, like you have to have the same number of, uh, let's say, player roster spots available to teams, right? Like you can't have one team has 25 players and one team has 40. We used to have that in September, right? But they, they kind of did away with that. And it's a lot different, though, when you're talking about how many scouts you can have or how many player development people you can have. That just it feels like or how many whatever cameras you can buy or data you can pay for. That just seems like we're we're taking things too far if we actually have to ensure some sort of level playing field there. Not that it will ever be level, even if you have the same number of people, some will have uh, better people than others or better processes set up but yeah that's an area where even even the cheap teams at least some of them managed to differentiate themselves by saying like rob arthur and i several years ago wrote an article for 538 that i think was headlined like stat heads are the best bargains in baseball or something we, we basically made the point that you know hiring front office analysts like it correlated with uh, performing a lot better and you don't have to pay those people as much as you have to pay players and now even like the relative bargains even if that's not as much of a bargain as it was several years ago if we're saying even those people is just a drop in the bucket in terms of how much we're spending on a team even there we have to hold the line like come on come on come on (laughs) can i can i tell you something that Mm -hmm. um has become an intrusive thought And I want to clarify before I say this, that I know that the owner that is depicted in Moneyball was Stephen Schott, not John Fisher. Yes. So, Mm -hmm. like, it's not Fisher. (laughs) The previous Miser Lee A's owner. Yeah. (laughs) I did not know that it's in the movie. It's Bobby Kotick of Activision Blizzard. (laughs) I I forgot that. Yeah. Oh, man. How appropriate, I I guess. I didn't. uh, Look. I don't know a lot about video games, as Mm -hmm. we have established, but I know enough for that to be a fact that is rolling around my brain. That fact is living rent-free in (laughs) my noggin. Yeah, it got public funding for the real estate in in your brain. (laughs) (sighs) It did. It did. I, wow, Ben, wow, wow, Ben, Ben, (laughs) Ben. Wow, yeah. Gosh, thank you for reminding me. Now I that'll didn't be know. bouncing around my <laughs> brain oh my. too. But yeah. Oh, oh man. Oh. I've been thinking about Moneyball too. I had not been thinking about that, but you know <laughs> Have this... you been have you been thinking about it in a way that actually involves words and not just random sounds? <laughs> sort of. I, oh. I was thinking about because uh, did you see this this new legislation introduced by some California representatives that they called the Moneyball Act? 
which is uh, intended to address the antitrust exemption that MLB has. And, you know, politicians are always taking a run at this thing and it's been tilting at windmills and it, nothing has really happened. And But this would be this is in response to the A's decamping from Oakland the way that they are, and uh, it would require the owners of any professional baseball club seeking to relocate to compensate the state and local authorities they move away from, right? And uh, look, I'm sure that like previous attempts to challenge the antitrust exemption, this one will probably also go nowhere. But the fact that they called it the Moneyball Act was uh, was interesting because this week, I think, is actually the 20th anniversary of Moneyball the Book. This, I believe it's this Saturday, June 17th. It's definitely June 2003, but I believe it's this Saturday. And, you know, I've seen some interviews with uh, Michael Lewis, uh, time to the 20th anniversary. I thought about seeing if he would want to come on this podcast, but I almost felt like so many people are <laughs> asking him to talk about it because of the anniversary. I didn't want to pile on. But like in the wake of of all of this happening at the same time, it's like an interesting time for the 20th anniversary to happen when it comes to assessing the impact and, and legacy of, of that book, right? I mean, I don't think it's uh, fair to hold things against the book that are happening 20 years later. And again, it's a different ownership group and everything, but it's sort of a similar ownership group in the way that they've handled things there, although this one is actually leaving. But like coming to it now with the frame of, yeah, I guess we always knew that I mean, it was an integral part of the story that the A's, they didn't have the resources and they weren't willing to spend the resources. And baseball and the economics of baseball were different in 2002, 2003 than they are in 2023. But still, like a lot of the impulse to embrace sabermetrics and, and try to get an edge there was because of either inability or unwillingness to spend on players, right? And that was the whole story, the 50 feet of crap quote and the, well, we can't replace Jason Giambi with Jason Giambi. We have to go get Scott Hatterberg or we have to find some underpriced, undervalued commodity here on the market. And it was always kind of integrally tied to cheapness, right? I mean, not necessarily for the people at the forefront of that. They may not even have been thinking of it in those terms, but the drive on the ownership level. And I think that in the wake of Moneyball, I heard Michael Lewis say, like, Billy Bean at the time didn't think anyone in baseball was going to read the book, <laughs> but but owners read it, right? And so the fact that the ideas in that book spread would have happened anyway, I think, on some sort of timeline and obviously was already happening, right? I mean, Michael Lewis uh, didn't discover sabermetrics. I mean, this had been going on in some circles for decades and uh, baseball prospectus had been around for several years at that point. But this was uh, a mainstream look at the topic that obviously had a huge impact and that it's just the best-selling baseball book and it became a popular movie and everyone knows Moneyball and the term Moneyball has been exported to all sorts of different industries, right? And so the ideas in there were pretty influential and, and like Lewis said, it was because even if uh, the rank-and-file baseball people weren't reading the book when it first came out and were maybe even misconstruing it based on things that they'd heard about it, 
owners were reading it. And if owners read that and, and saw, hey, I don't have a, a executive like Billy Bean and uh, my team could be run this way. And I could save some money and I could go get players who were good without paying as much for those players, right? And so they were driving that. And people who are interested in sabermetrics like us, that's not part of the appeal. It's not like uh, I'm interested in the science of baseball and learning more about baseball because uh, I want teams to pay players less or anything. It's just that that was kind of a byproduct of that that came from people who were more steeped in finance uh, reading this and thinking, oh, baseball could be run like a business. We could run this more efficiently. If I don't have a money ball front office, then I should and I could. And so many people were attracted to work in baseball because of that book, right? So, so many people read Moneyball and thought, oh, this is an outlet for me. I love baseball and here's a way for me to have a place in baseball and I could put my skills to use. Again, I don't think it's because they were thinking, I don't want to pay Jason Giambi market value. It's because uh, they thought like, oh, we could discover some some secrets about baseball and some hidden truths and we could find some overlooked gems and it'll be fun and intellectually stimulating. But you could sort of sell yourself to an owner like, hey, I could save you some money here. So it's just because this anniversary is coinciding with the A's getting out of town and and being the owners from Major League, it does kind of remind you like, oh, the initiative for this, not for Bill James and maybe not for Billy Bean, but for owners often who were hiring people to run their teams this way. It was tied very tightly to not wanting to spend a whole lot and, and being cheap. And then there was this whole explosion of of analysts because it turned out that you got great return on investment. And now some teams have so many analysts that some super cheap owners are now like, let's limit the analysts because it used to be that you could go get one quant or one R&D person and you might have more than other teams did. But now teams will have dozens of those people. And I think there's a diminishing return at a certain point. You know, it's not like having an infinite number of front office employees would continue to make you better. At some point, you have to sort of streamline things and have people work together. But it is, I don't know if it's ironic or it's fitting or it's curious or what, but the fact that this anniversary is coming just as the A's are escaping from Oakland and ditching Oakland, it's... uh, well, it was remarkable, at least, and now I have remarked on it. There's like this fork in the road, right? It's like, you know, I don't want any player to be underpaid, but if you are correctly identifying players who you know to be good and other teams don't, yeah, and then you reinvest the savings, quote-unquote, that you got signing those guys into the roster, well, okay, you know, mm-hmm. then you're, you're still spending money, you're, which wasn't an option quote unquote in Oakland but like you think about a team like you know the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Dodgers right you you find guys you assemble a roster of dudes some of them are going to be on league minimum contracts because you know they're good or you know you can fix them and other teams don't and then you take that money and you pay Mookie bets and Mm -hmm. it's like okay okay great Mm -hmm. but that wasn't the fork that all teams took some Mm -hmm. went down Cheapskate Lane. Mm-hmm. Right. You can come yeah. up with a, a sassier, you know, a quippier <laughs> name for it than mm-hmm. that. I'm all worked up today, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm all, I'm all, <laughs> yeah. I'm mean, all worked up. 
that part of the reason why that book is so successful and that story appealed to people is that Michael Lewis is extremely talented and he's a great storyteller. And I was surprised, actually. I heard him say on Rob Nyer's podcast that he met Billy Bean in spring training in 2002. And the book came out in June of 2003. So he very much just did parachute in there and and turned around that entire book in a year, basically, maybe less when he had to turn it in. And it had such an impact. And I haven't gone back and reread it recently, not very recently, at least. But it remains extremely readable the last time I picked it up. I had a hard time putting it down, even though I knew everything in there. And obviously, like the things that if you go back and read it, like the things the A's front office was doing and the things they they were talking about and the innovations and everything were extremely basic and rudimentary by today's standards. You know, you read that book and it's like on base percentage is valuable and certain types of draft picks and everything. It's very simplistic stuff compared to the cutting edge things that front offices are working on now. But I think it's still a good introduction to a more objective analysis about baseball or sabermetrics and the history of studying sabermetrics because Michael Lewis did get into that. He didn't pretend that Billy Bean had discovered these things himself. He he acknowledged the legacy that existed there. So it was such a, a good introduction to those ideas and concepts and probably still is, even though it's outmoded in in some ways when it comes to the specifics now. And obviously, like, there was a, a focus in a, a narrative of that book. And, you know, you focus on Chad Bradford and Scott Hatterberg and you don't talk about Mark Mulder and Tim Their Hudson incredible and Miguel Tejada and Barry <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Zito. You know, like, obviously who, it's who a... Who pitched for the A's that year? Uh, yeah, time, the, time just it's lost Chad, to the Sands. Chad Bradford, I think, pitched all of their innings that yeah, year. Yeah, all but, of them, every single yeah. one. <laughs> so you tell a story, you frame it around uh, certain characters who sort of serve your story. It was uh, not an untrue story in many respects, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, you pick your focus as a storyteller, obviously, so you could critique it on those grounds, but it's, it's a really good book. And, uh, Michael Lewis, like he's uh, found himself like with his finger on the pulse many times as he does now, right. With FTX, right. He just is at the center of these things and he finds the right stories to tell and the right characters to frame them around. And that was a big part of why that book was so successful that he had Billy Bean as as a compelling character at the heart of that story. It's interesting now that, you know, Billy Bean is still with the A's now. He doesn't get a lot of flack for what's going on with them. And I don't know how much he deserves or doesn't. Like, he supposedly is no longer involved with baseball operations, right? Like, I guess it was before this season. He, you know, was at least nominally the head of the baseball operations department for a while with David Force kind of running the day-to-day. And then Billy Bean just sort of handed over everything to Forst, and now he is an advisor or assistant or whatever to Fisher, which could implicate him in this whole thing or could not. Who knows? Like, he has a, an ownership stake in, in the team, but not a, a big one. So whether he has been all for this whole endeavor that the A's have done or whether he's been along for the ride and has opposed it internally, I have no idea. But... He, you know, becomes the golden boy after Moneyball and 
I don't know if if he's tarnished at all by his continued association with the team as it exits Oakland the way that it is, but he's obviously still still a part, you know, not nearly as visible a part of that franchise as he used to be day to day, but still associated with it, still very tightly involved with it. So I wonder like if we ask the question how different would baseball be if baseball were different, if we ask that about Moneyball, how different would baseball be if Moneyball hadn't been written? I don't know. I, I think a lot of those trends, we were on the path to those uh, already, and and it would have continued without Moneyball. I think it certainly springboarded and accelerated a lot of that stuff, so the timeline would have been different. And maybe here in 2023, we would not be where we are. Maybe we'd be where we were a few years ago if there hadn't been that accelerant sprayed on the process by Moneyball, which just concentrated so much attention, both the book and the movie. But a lot of that was happening as it was and and would have happened anyway. I think with or without the book, it just would not have been a nationally known story the same way that it is. I think that it certainly... um accelerated the trend would probably be the way that I'd put it. I think you're right that, like, for as complicated as analytics and the data sources and the sort of expertise one needs to really wrangle them, as complicated as that has gotten now, like, it, you know, we were taking baby steps uh, at that point, but we were Mm -hmm. taking them. So I am confident we would have gotten there eventually, but I, I do think that it's sort of, you know, through gasoline on the fire, as it were. Yeah, and maybe just the cult of the front office and, yeah. and lionizing the sports executive that, again, probably also would have happened to some extent, but obviously, like, turning Billy Bean into the face of this bestseller and then having him be played by Brad Pitt, <laughs> like, that was probably a big part of fans sort of seeing themselves as as the front office and thinking of things from the GM's perspective, which, uh, again, like fantasy sports uh, has played a big part in that. And I think that would have happened anyway. But, you know, breaking things down that way, I I think it, it opened doors for people in baseball. Now, a lot of those doors, it, it turned out they were white guys going through them. But right. <laughs> white guys with different backgrounds, right. <laughs> I guess, at least initially. And more recently, maybe people with, uh, at least in some cases, more diverse backgrounds. But people who were not baseball people, right. baseball lifers, obviously found a place in the game. And uh, and maybe we are people like that, even though we're not working for a baseball team. So a lot of uh, writers and media people were inspired by that book and that story to tell stories like that or to be a part of those stories and and people who otherwise would have gone into finance or some other quantitative field. In some cases, they were in that field and they switched over or they were in baseball and then moved over to that field. But But people saw an application for those skills in baseball that previously had not existed really, right? Which is that I can use these skills and these skills will be valued and in demand and I can do something that I find intellectually engaging and I can pair it with baseball and uh, I can find a way to pair those things, which has been very rewarding for a lot of people. And I think that's good. So there's good and bad that's come of the book and it uh, it's still like whenever you look at a, a list of like the best selling baseball books now, you know, whatever the the new release might briefly leapfrog, but 
you just see Moneyball like it never falls far down the list of like Amazon baseball bestsellers. And as soon as the new book buzz goes away from whatever the hot release of the day is, Moneyball just inexorably will will climb back up to the top of that list even 20 years later. So it uh, it's its legacy is in some ways probably exaggerated, but in other ways pretty extraordinary that it has had the impact that it had, you know, a story about – the Oakland A's in 2002 who <laughs> won 20 games in a row but didn't win a World Series or anything and yet it resonated the way that it did and had the impact that it had. Yeah. So the A's no longer the Oakland A's as of quite soon. I have uh, serious doubts now that it's almost a reality about the Las Vegas A's for reasons that we have discussed, like just whether this is a good idea. You know, you could say that that Rob Manfred is uh, doing his job for one of his bosses, John Fisher, in helping orchestrate this and get the public kickbacks. But I don't know that we won't just find ourselves in this situation again several years down the road because, I mean, Ray Ratto for Defector, he already wrote a speculative piece from the future about the Las Vegas A's looking for a new home and starting relocation talks. Like, it's not hard to envision that. Even though the Golden Knights just won a Stanley Cup, it's just, it's going to be different and it's going to be much more challenging. And a 30,000-seat park... If you draw 30,000 every day, fine, that's viable. But if you can never draw more than that, it's going to be really, really mm -hmm. tough. Like that's a low capacity and mm -hmm. the media market there and the competition from other sports teams and the idea that they're just going to consistently pack the park in the middle of summer with tourists, with visitors coming to Las Vegas and deciding I want to go to a Las Vegas A's game. I don't know. And especially because the team, when it moves, uh, presumably will still be bad. And where will they even play? Will they be playing in Reno? Will they be playing in a, a minor league ballpark for a while when you would be getting that new ballpark love and, and new team love and people coming to check you out and you won't be able to fully capitalize on that because you won't have your ballpark ready? Like, I just don't know how you could look at that situation and say long term – that you're really better set up to thrive as a franchise there in Las Vegas than you are in Oakland. But that is uh, probably not going to be John Fisher's problem, I imagine, long term, because he'll get out. <laughs> and I don't know why you would want to be in business with that ownership group, seeing how they've treated Oakland, why you would say, yeah, we want to give those people a good deal and uh, have them come to our city. You got to imagine that they'll be looking for a way out of there, whether it's moving the team again or just offloading that team in the not too distant future. But it wouldn't be a bad thing if, if they just decided to sell because I can't imagine any ownership group could be worse, although <laughs> dangerous to say that. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> the monkey paw curls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that was uh, an uplifting discussion yeah, about really. uh, <laughs> baseball. <laughs> Started with the most disappointing teams, and uh, then we talked about the Oakland A's. So that doesn't really <laughs> – and the Las Vegas A's. So and Rob Manfred. And like Rob Manfred. Length. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, we can end with a pass blast, which uh, will also be <laughs> – oh, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe we should have just skipped the 2020 pass blast just to memory hold <sighs> that year. But uh, I mean, yep. most of that year is memory hold because yeah. of yeah. trauma. Jeez Louise. Well, 
Here, Here is go. our 2020 pass blast from David Lewis, architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston, who writes, teams and fans get creative without baseball during the pandemic. In 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic greatly impacted most aspects of life, professional baseball included. The MLB season was shortened to just 60 games and the minor league season was canceled outright. In the wake of these changes, fans and teams alike seeking a sense of normality and perhaps trying to recoup some financial losses had to try to get creative in order to keep baseball in their lives. As reported by the Associated Press on May 30th, 2020, one such example came from Rhode Island, where the AAA Pawtucket Red Sox served ballpark food to fans at their home stadium, albeit without a game being played. The event called Dining on the Diamond allowed fans to visit the ballpark in a COVID-safe environment. Picnic tables were aligned on the infield a minimum of 14 feet apart. Diners were required to wear masks except for when they were eating, and all attendees had to pass a self-screening symptom check before entering. Furthermore, reservations were required and all food had to be ordered and paid for in advance. The night featured two seatings with a half-hour break in between so that each table could be properly disinfected. With five people per table, up to 200 people could attend each night. Far from the 10,000-plus McCoy Stadium could fit at full capacity. Fans jumped at the opportunity to be back in the ballpark in any way they could, selling out reservations for the initial two nights in less than an hour and a half showing enough demand that the Pawsocks stretched the event to a third night. For a baseball romantic, this is the best restaurant in the world, said team president Charles Steinberg, reflecting on fan interest. Pawsocks vice president Dan Ray continued, I think people are just excited to come out to a ballpark. They're excited to socialize under the correct conditions. This is an opportunity for us to do something a little bit unique, a little bit different, but something special. Steinberg was excited about what the event might mean for the team in the future. You're happy to take a bow and let baseball resume at center stage, but you may have created something that you just may be able to do when the team's on the road. It has a chance to become a positive innovation in baseball that arises from this difficult time. And David concludes, unfortunately for the dedicated fans who showed up to the stadium when no game was being played, baseball would never return to Pawtucket. <laughs> the Red Sox AAA affiliate was moved to Worcester, Massachusetts oh for the God. beginning of the 2021 season. Oh, I thought we were going to end on a about that. slightly less downcast note, but no. <laughs> so we ended on another note of another team moving. I guess it was appropriate, at least. <laughs> Oh, Ben, that uh, year, like, yeah. you know, mm. and like we, you and I, we both, mm -hmm. we both escaped relatively yeah. unscathed, you mm -hmm. know, in the grand scheme. Yes. But even just thinking back to it makes me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, it was so <laughs> terrible. What a terrible. Well. Anyway, everybody just treat each other well. It's the best we can do right now. I mean, it's not, but it is an important thing to do right now. Maybe that's a mm -hmm. yeah. better way to put it. Okay. Maybe I'll find some silly emails for next time. Yeah, we can, can, we can we please? Change the mood. Send us some uh, wacky hypotheticals that we can <sighs> discuss gravy. on our next episode. <laughs> Well, after we recorded, Nevada's Governor Joe Lombardo did sign the bill for $380 million in public funding for the construction of a Las Vegas ballpark. That was the last governmental hurdle that the A's had to clear, and now they just have to formally apply to MLB for relocation and get approved by the other owners, which seems like it's just a formality. Condolences to all the A's fans out there, including one who messaged me on Twitter earlier and said, Hey, Ben, you didn't ask me, but not sure what to do with this outrage. Been listening to Effectively Wild for years and been a 
a fan of the A's for much longer. With them leaving, I was wondering whether this was the end of MLB for me, and I was undecided. Manfred's comments, of all things, put me over the edge today, and I'm going to let this hobby go. I understand that MLB is just another corporation, but the amount of disdain this person has for baseball, its fans, its history, its players is just too much. I don't need another over-advertised, dehumanized, corporate, immoral product in my life. F. Rob Manfred and MLB. Love your show and your whole cast through the years. Sorry to lose you, Jack, if you do cut MLB out of your life. And if this podcast goes with it, there must be many A's fans these days questioning their baseball fandom. I would certainly understand if they needed a breather or a permanent break. But I hope that some fans who are fed up with this whole saga are able to retain some attachment to baseball as long as it continues to give them pleasure and enrich their lives, whether that's rooting for another team or rooting for players, studying the history, talking to other fans. It's a really great game, but there are times when the people in power, the people in charge, make it much harder to enjoy. I didn't even see while we were recording Manfred's comments on Pride Nights. He talked about leaving the decision about whether to hold Pride Nights up to the teams instead of making it a league-wide standardized thing, whereas every team except the Rangers has decided to have one. But Manfred also said, we have told teams in terms of actual uniforms, hats, bases, that we don't think putting logos on them is a good idea just because of the desire to protect players not putting them in a position of doing something that may make them uncomfortable because of their personal views. Putting aside the fact that MLB does encourage or mandate logos and patches for other events and causes, Armed Forces Day caps, for instance, not encouraging players to wear these things or even actively discouraging teams from doing so even if they want to. Well, as Pete Campbell said, not great, Bob. As Meg tweeted earlier, I know it isn't new, just being laid bare in starker terms, but the A's relocating, the bungling of pride, the talk of capping baseball ops, contracting the minors, it all feels like the game shrinking to only serve the few while leaving the rest of us behind. Before I finish, one much lighter bit of news. We've talked a couple times recently about warm-up throws between innings, what purpose, if any, they serve from an entertainment standpoint or from a game preparation standpoint. One thing I don't think we discussed is any cost that comes with them. Well, here's one. This is, I'm sure, not unique, but unusual. Angels shortstop Zach Neto went on the injured list with a left oblique strain, which he sustained on Wednesday while making a warm-up throw in the first inning. Doesn't sound like a serious strain, but yes, a young guy, a great fielder, can hurt himself making a routine warm-up throw between innings. Also, if you're looking for more me elsewhere, I was on Rob Nyer's podcast, The Sabercast, with Sam Miller and Theo Fightmaster, former Sonoma Stompers GM. We talked about the only rules it has to work and reminisced a bit. It's the most recent episode. I'll put it on the show page. And also, for those of you who are into video games or just supporting my other endeavors, I'm now doing a regular video game podcast again. It's on the Ringerverse feed. I'm co-hosting it with Jessica Clemens, who is also from Seattle originally and sort of a Mariners fan like Meg. We just did our first episode together on Diablo 4 and Gollum and the Lord of the Rings games and Street Fighter and the future of fighting games and new trailer announcements. It's a pretty packed episode. Again, you can find it on the Ringerverse feed where I often pop up talking about other topics too. I will link to that on the show page as well. And you can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. We did get some signups after our most recent episode when we talked about the challenges facing sports media. Not that that discussion was intended to be a funding drive, but thanks to those of you who responded that way. The following five listeners have signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay virtually ad-free, and and also get themselves access to some perks. Michael Fazio, Alexander Stedman, Ziad Yagi, Daniel Howland, and Daniel. 
thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Well Discord group for patrons only. I highly recommend joining me in the group. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams and expedited email answers and merch and ad-free fangrass memberships and so much more. Check out patreon.com slash effectivelywild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site and everyone can contact us via email at podcast at fangrass.com. Send us your questions and comments. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can find Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and on Reddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with one more show before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. Effectively wild, effectively styled, distilled over chilled beats, effectively mild. Follow the plot, Sam's in his garage, Ben put the reverb at 20 in his menage. And after 2,000 episodes, we got more inside jokes than Carrot Top's prop box before he got yoked. Lab League, banging scheme, planting trees and trampolines. Minor League free agent drafts, stat blasts and pass blasts, minimum inning, Hall of Fame donation shaming, Tyler Wade and Taylor Ward, the rotten slot to rigor mortis, answer a couple of emails, do a play index, call Ned Garver, Eddie Robinson, Johnny O'Brien, Ron Teasley, Charlie Maxwell, Bobby Shantz, Kiki Hernandez shit his pants, Dylan, I'ma make a swear, too late, fuck it, no one cares, Chris Davis 247 tattoos are the new mnemonics, Scott Boris nautical analogies are tragedies, keep them honest, vroom vroom, here's your primer, on Beef Boys, Baseball's End, Roger Angel and Super Pretzels, Williams Astadio and Mike Trout Hypotheticals, waiting for the perfect bat from a volcanic eruption, ladies and gentlemen, the Effectively Wild Introduction. <laughs>